Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 114 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Louise Adams, who is a clinical psychologist from Australia, and she is also an author, podcaster, and speaker. She owns Treat Yourself Well Sydney, a specialist psychology clinic for weight-inclusive health and well-being, and she's about to launch her own podcast called All Fired Up, where she meets with experts from around the world to debrief, rage, and unpack the often misguided messages we're given about weight, food, exercise, and health. Not only that, but she's also launching a online course and community called Untrapped. So she's got a lot of great stuff going on, and she's a super powerful anti-diet speaker and warrior. I know you're going to love her too, so I can't wait to share that episode in just a moment. Before we get to that, I just wanted to clarify a few things from the episode with Jess Baker a few weeks ago, episode 112. I record these intros pretty far ahead of time, so the I'm recording this actually the week that the Jess Baker episode dropped, and I love that episode, and a lot of folks do too. People have really been excited about this, and some people have expressed that this is their favorite episode of the podcast by far, and it's one of my favorites too, but a few people have expressed feeling confused over some of the messages in it, so I just wanted to clarify that because we got into some really nuanced points about body liberation. And just to clarify, I don't ever recommend intentional weight loss to anyone because it doesn't actually work and it causes more harm than help. So for health purposes, it doesn't work and it actually can be counterproductive because as we know, 95% of diets or more fail, right, up to maybe 98%. And the people who do quote unquote succeed on diets really do so at the expense of their lives because they're just organizing their lives around maintaining that weight loss, around food and exercise. And it really looks a lot like the picture of clinical anorexia. When you look at the people who are long-term maintainers of weight loss from, from intentional weight loss or dieting, intentional weight loss doesn't actually work and it causes more harm than good because when diets do fail, as they inevitably do, people end up weight cycling, putting back the weight they lost and then some usually. And over time, people can go through you know multiple cycles of this and that actually causes more stress and inflammation on the body that can cause chronic health conditions or contribute to chronic health conditions developing that would never have developed or might never have developed if they never pursued weight loss in the first place. So it's both ineffective and unhelpful and in many cases even unsafe. Like I don't recommend bariatric surgery for anyone either because it's super dangerous and doesn't work. So again, we see people regaining the lost weight after, you know, it's it's longer than dieting usually, but it does happen after years people end up regaining the weight they lost and often more. And it also has really dangerous complications like chronic diarrhea, nutrient malabsorption, malnutrition and even death. It's a pretty scary picture when you think about the complications of bariatric surgery. And so when Jess and I were talking about body autonomy in that episode, I want to make it clear that I support people's choice to do whatever they choose with their bodies because, of course, everyone is allowed to make their own decisions and body autonomy is a really essential part of body liberation. 
and that I would caution anyone who wants to lose weight or get bariatric surgery not to do it because it's not safe or effective. So that's a really nuanced point, and I just wanted to highlight that because I think some folks might not have picked up that second part about it not being safe or effective and just heard me and Jess talking about body autonomy and thinking like, wait, does body positivity then mean I can pursue intentional weight loss? What's, you know, what does this all really mean? And we were having gray area conversations in that episode, like we discussed, but I want to be very clear and precise and not so gray or shadowy on this point that it's actually not good for your health. And so as a health professional, I just have to say, like, I don't recommend weight loss for anyone. I don't recommend bariatric surgery for anyone. That's it from a medical perspective. And so, of course, people might feel like they want to change their body. And I don't blame anyone for feeling that way in this society because of the tremendous tremendous oppression and stigma that people in larger bodies face. But it's an important public service announcement to just remind everyone that we don't actually have any safe, effective, and long-term ways for people to intentionally lose weight. So while that desire, of course, might be there for people who are stigmatized, and some people might pursue that, you know, pursue bariatric surgery like we discussed in the episode with some of these high-profile celebrity cases of bariatric surgery recently, like that's their prerogative. And I would not recommend it to anyone, including those folks, because it's just not safe or effective. So, yeah, I just wanted to share that and hope that helps alleviate some of the confusion that people might have experienced with that episode. It was definitely sort of an advanced level discussion about body politics. So feel free to reach out in the Facebook group if you have any other questions or feedback on that. You can go to christyharrison.com slash community to be redirected right to the group. That's christyharrison.com slash community. All right. So I'm going to answer this week's listener question now. It's from a listener named Ashley B who writes, it seems like most intuitive eating discussions center around ending the binging and deprivation cycle. I've mostly eaten whatever I want and more, but I still feel miserable about how much I eat. My doctor says I need to lose weight to slow the progression of arthritis. What should I do? So thanks so much for this question, Ashley. And before I answer, just a quick disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only, not meant as a substitute for medical advice. But similar to the question that I answered in episode 110 with Casey Berglund, where the listener talked about her doctor blaming her carpal tunnel syndrome on her weight, I would say maybe seek a second opinion, right? A doctor saying that you need to lose weight to slow the progression of any disease is not actually practicing evidence-based medicine because we know from tons and tons of research, the health at every size research really supports this, that intentional weight loss is not effective or safe long-term, right, as I was just talking about earlier. And when people are recommended weight loss for slowing the progression or preventing certain diseases, what usually happens is that they lose weight in the short term, may or may not see any benefit to the disease in question, and oftentimes don't see any benefit, such as with cholesterol or diabetes or many conditions. People are recommended to lose weight all the time, and it's not actually effective. And I would question whether it would be really effective for your arthritis either. So the weight loss recommendation isn't a sound recommendation. That's my point. Like, I would seek a second opinion from a doctor who was more weight neutral, who had a health at every size approach, who was willing to give you other treatment options for your arthritis rather than losing weight. And sometimes it can be stretching or changing some things about your eating habits or 
increasing movement or things like that, physical therapy, right, or medication. So there's lots of other options that have nothing to do with your weight, that have nothing to do with intentional weight loss. It might have to do with your food and movement choices, but that may or may not actually lead to weight loss, right? So, you know, you could have zero weight loss and stay at the same size you're at right now and still manage your arthritis through other means. And I think it's worth seeking out a doctor who's going to give you that option, right? And not push weight loss on you and give you some other opportunities because it sounds like you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you had a really easy relationship with food all the time, right? And it sounds from your question like you have some internalized weight stigma or stigma at least towards yourself for how much you eat. And even I would even question this idea of feeling miserable about how much you eat. Is it really about how much you eat or is it about internalized weight stigma that is making you think you eat too much just because of your size, right? Because that happens for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people assume, well, I'm big, so I must be eating too much because that's the, the myth that gets perpetuated out there. And in reality, you might actually be eating exactly what your body needs and it's not too much. You're just judging it as too much based on some external standards. So I would invite you to consider that as a possibility. You know, I'm not saying that's definitely what's happening in your situation, but I would invite you to consider, are you judging your food and your eating as too much, quote unquote, because you feel like your body is too much, because you feel like your body is too big, because society has taught you to stigmatize your body and stigmatize your appetite, right? And our appetites, I mean, especially women and femmes, our appetites are so stigmatized, right? Women and femmes are socialized to not have an appetite, not show an appetite, not be sort of heartily hungry in the way that men and male identifying people are sort of socialized to, to be masculinely hungry, right? It's There's a sort of cultural conditioning where hunger is the province of the masculine and deprivation and going without is the province of the feminine, right? It's It's this myth that we're all indoctrinated into in society, in patriarchy, right, in this patriarchal society we live in. So I would I would wonder if some of that might be going on for you and sort of see if you can investigate what of that feels true for you. And I also would recommend investigating a little bit this idea that you've eaten whatever you want and more, right? So again, the and more feels like a judgment, feels like it's too much. But are you really eating whatever you want if you're having that judgment? right? Usually the case is no. Usually it's the case that when people feel a judgment about how much they eat, right, if they deem it to be too much, even if they think they're eating whatever they want, there's a sense of deprivation around the corner. There's a sense of, oh my God, I really shouldn't be doing this. I'm doing this again. Why am I doing this? Oh, look at me. I'm eating too much. Self-judgment constantly in the background. So, you're not really able to be free to actually do what you want and actually truly have full permission to eat and truly eat whatever you want when you have that kind of judgment going on in the background because there's always a threat that the food's going to be taken away, right? There's always this sort of implicit threat that if you think you're eating too much now, you quote unquote should be eating less. And at some time in the future, you're going to make yourself eat less. And so that can actually 
create a situation in which you end up eating more now as a rebellion, which may or may not be happening for you, or you're just eating as much as you need and feeling guilty about it when you could take the guilt out of the equation and just be eating the same amount as much as you need and feeling good about it and feeling energized and feeling like, okay, I got my needs met. Now let me move on with my day, right? So that's what intuitive eating is ultimately about is having food be something that gives you pleasure and joy and helps you meet your needs, but ultimately just move about your day, you know, move on with your life. Like, eat so that you can go do other better things. And sometimes eating is part of the great stuff, right? Sometimes eating is delicious and an experience and really pleasurable. And sometimes it's super boring and ho-hum and it's like, all right, I'm just going to eat this sandwich at my desk and then get back to work because I'm actually really interested in this work. Or I'm going to go out with this friend and have this dish that I'm not really a huge fan of, you know, at a plate like they want to go to a ramen shop. This is true for me. I love noodles in general, but I'm not a huge fan of ramen. I don't know why. Something about like noodles in a broth it's just hard to eat and I get messy and stuff so I have friends who are obsessed with ramen right and if someone suggests a ramen restaurant and they're like oh I really want to check out this new ramen place or I'm writing about it you know I want to like have a friend come with me to review it or something like that I'm like sure totally I'll do that that sounds like fun even though I'm not the biggest fan of ramen right so there's times in your life when food is just going to be ho-hum or you're going to make compromises it's not going to be the best possible experience right but like it's all of it a good relationship with food is all of it what a good relationship with food is not is judging yourself for eating as much as you want at any given occasion because then that's taking away the real permission and the real ability to trust that you can have as much as you want and get your needs met consistently So I hope that helps answer your question. I know it's kind of just food for thought, but I think investigate what of that rings true for you and see what you come up with. So for everyone listening, if you want to submit your own question, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have yours answered on an upcoming episode. And if you want to get some more advice from me, you can grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. This is like my quick start guide to intuitive eating and health at every size. So if you're looking for some practical tips to launch your anti-diet journey, this is a good place to go. You can head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it, or you can text seven strategies to the phone number 44222. That's the number seven and the word strategies, all one word, to the phone number 44222, or go to christyharrison.com slash strategies. This episode is brought to you by Casper. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It has supportive memory foams that create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to be spending a third of your life on it. They offer free shipping and free returns to the U.S. and Canada, and with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. It's definitely my favorite mattress ever, too. My husband and I have had one for over a year now, and it just keeps getting more and more comfy with time. Also, I think I haven't used the word husband on this podcast yet, so surprise, we got married. Um, It's a funny way to break the news. But yeah, we've had it since before we were even engaged, and it's been a wonderful mattress, and it really does keep getting better and better with age. So you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash psych and using the offer code 
code psych at checkout. That's P-S-Y-C-H like psych, like our name. So casper.com slash psych and using the offer code psych at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Louise Adams. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So 1970s in Sydney, Australia was not like, (laughs) was not a food culture. (laughs) And in my family, uh, I mean, growing up, I, you know, we were very privileged and live in a nice suburb, but um, there was a lot of problems in the home. So, and mum didn't love cooking. So my memories of growing up and being around food were kind of one of really disinterest and just dreadful food. <laughs> so my, I have a memory of my mum making salad and when she used to make salad, she would tear up the, the lettuce and stick it in the sink, like the kitchen sink where she did the dishes. Oh. Like it just sink of water with and just soak it for about 40 minutes. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> And, and and I don't know why to this day I don't know why she did that but that was that was our salad and it would always smell a little bit like dishwater so oh <laughs> and and usually that would be served with a burnt chop or sausages which were like really overcooked so I just don't think I really liked food <laughs> I just wasn't particularly hungry I remember and I got sick at about very very young I kept on getting we call it tonsillitis. I think you guys call it strep throat. Is mm. that right? There is something called tonsillitis here too, which is like the in, an inflammation of the tonsils, but then strep throat is like the whole throat. I don't know. Something like I that. I don't know. Anyway, I had some throat thing going. Ended up getting my tonsils out when I was four and I couldn't eat for ages. For about a year around that operation, I remember all I could eat was pretty much jelly and ice cream. <laughs> <gasps> oh. Yeah. So. And I was tiny. I was really small. I think, I guess today they might say failure to thrive because of the difficulties I had with food. So those those are big things of not being particularly hungry and not being particularly drawn to the food around me. Did your parents try any interventions to get you to eat more or did doctors express concern? Oh, (laughs) Yeah, there's a memory I have. I mean, I don't remember anyone being particularly worried about it. I do remember my mum giving me energy drinks to to increase my sugar levels, which was weird, and having to drink them after dinner. I still have no idea why I was doing this. I don't remember it having any major impact whatsoever. So I just kind of got on with it. I do remember our family meals being not very fun because essentially my parents really didn't like each other. So mealtimes were always really quiet and everyone just wanted to get the hell away from the table. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it sounds so tense and uncomfortable. Oh, that is, you know, that if you were to describe my relationship with food growing up, it's like tense and uncomfortable and please can we just get this over? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, yeah. And there's another element to it as well because, and you know what, you have actually talked about this on your podcast before, but pretty young I realised, well, I didn't know what I had, but I have misophonia, which is it means hatred of sound and it really expresses itself when people are eating food. 
So the sound of eating food for me makes me want to kill people. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That is so interesting. Yeah, we talked about that on the episode with Vivian McMaster because she said her sister had that, but... I've never, I've never talked to anyone who had it themselves, and that must be so difficult. It was, it was horrendous. And, you know, I only found out it was a thing after I had children. So throughout my whole life, I just thought I was pretty weird around, you know, intolerance of being able to hear people chewing. <laughs> but I found out more about it. And apparently, I mean, it's a really new area of research, but they, they're talking about how it develops. And in the families of people with misophonia, there's usually a sibling who uses noise as a form of torture. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. My little brother used to, I know this is going to sound really weird, but he used to purposely breathe funny or chew loudly just to annoy me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Did, so he knew that it bothered you. He, yeah, and he loved it. And I, we had so many staring competitions across the dining table. <laughs> and he would just say, when no one was looking, he'd open his mouth and show me his food. <laughs> oh, God. Such a little boy thing to do. It makes my skin crawl, even talking about it now. But apparently that's very common in the families of people who grow up. To have misophonia and yeah, it's terrible to have it, but you just have it and you can't do anything about it except to kind of understand and try and minimize or mask the sound of people eating. Wow. That sounds really difficult. Yeah. I mean, I kind of laugh about it because it is, it is literally a very strange problem to have. As a psychologist, I'm trying to be very compassionate towards myself about it. And I see it as like one of my little quirks. But yeah, growing up, it really did make it hard to enjoy food because I just needed to get away from other people. And, you know, no one understood what was going on with that. Right. And probably they didn't have the language around it at the time, right? Did you ever get a diagnosis of that or was it just like, no, I'm just weird. I'm just, yeah, I'm just actually, Louise is, you know, intolerant or she's, you know, too sensitive or yeah, she's just grouchy all the time. (laughs) But literally, I mean, I did my whole clinical master's degree in psychology and never heard of this. And I don't even, I'm not sure if it's in the DSM-5, but I know it's only recently been started to have been researched and looked at from a neuroscience perspective. So it's very, very new and trendy. (laughs) That is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So did you at that point or after that point, did you ever start to like food more when you started eating outside the home with friends and stuff? Or was it kind of the same thing where they would annoy you too? Oh, it's just so weird. Certain people annoy me more than others, but Generally, as I, as I grew up, I got better with food. I, I got more, I, I, I did eat, but I really I still just was not interested in food whatsoever. I literally wasn't hungry, I think, until my mid-20s. And I don't know if it's as a result or if it's just genetics or whatever, but I was very small growing up and much smaller. I looked smaller and much younger than everybody that I went to school with. So that became, I guess, part of my identity and people would call me. I was called Little Lou, or my other nickname was Runt. Mm. <laughs> wow. Oh, God. And, I mean, I'd always been small, so I'd, I'd not 
I couldn't kind of understand the meaning that was being attached to that. But I do have a lot of memories of people, various people praising my body and praising how small I was. And I, I remember like just thinking, this is so weird because this is just, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, you know, I'm just living my life. <laughs> and, and it just seemed very funny to be told that this, this body I had was quote unquote, a good body. But, you know, since then, being friends with people from high school who I'm still friends with and, and understanding that their body stories were completely different. It's just, it's interesting how, I guess something that for me might have been formed with a bit of trauma and a bit of neglect meant that this was seen as a really positive outcome. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's just a bit weird, really. And it's, yeah, this the fact that diet culture praises people's body size, you know, for being small when you don't know what went into that. You don't know oh, what yeah. people were doing to to have a body like that, right? Yeah. I mean, like I, I didn't have an eating disorder. Mine's not an eating disorder story, but I definitely place it more in the category of sort of body trauma or body neglect because I was in pain and that's why I wasn't hungry. I wasn't safe at home. I wasn't having good things happen to me in the family and that was maybe affecting how my body was growing but then all of this like wow look at your body is it's just a real mind twist and then so when I got older I left home when I was like 18 and things immediately got better <laughs> <laughs> I discovered food and just I discovered enjoyment of food and I, appetite popped up for maybe the first time when I was living out of home and um, and it was, it's kind of hilarious because, like, when you're a student, you've got literally no money. So I was discovering appetite and love of food at exactly the same time I had no money for food. Oh, <laughs> not the greatest time to discover it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had two minute noodles, toasted sandwiches, like cheap foods, but just I really do remember just for the first time enjoying food and looking forward to eating. So that was a real lovely thing to happen but of course and I don't know of course if what's going on but my body started to get larger and then the negative comments started particularly from in my boyfriend at the time who was really into the gym and like I mean I'm talking I'm 18 19 years old I am not I am tiny still and but if my body started to change at all it would be oh you better go to the gym you know you better you know watch that and oh. so first time I'm getting body policed like well you better keep that body which yeah it it rattled me and like a, a you know a good girl I started to go to the gym and started to worry about all of that kind of stuff that girls are taught to worry about because there's so much placed on this idea that what we look like is our value. And, and I totally bought into that. It's hard to escape, to not buy into that because even if you escape that or you don't internalize that belief when you're growing up, there's a moment when it's sort of forced upon you. And it sounds like this boyfriend was like the ambassador for diet culture kind of. <laughs> Yes, he, you know, I guess I, I didn't realize I was in a prison, but yeah, he, he was my first prison guard. <laughs> so you know what? I like you because of your body and you better keep it. Not a good 
relationship, it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Did you recognize that that was abusive or controlling or, you know, that that there was something wrong with that? Or did you sort of internalize that but break up for other reasons? Yeah, I internalized that and broke up for other reasons. But interestingly, at the time, I, I was studying and I did a double major in psychology and criminology and just learning about the injustice of the criminal justice system and learning a little bit about feminism and feminist perspectives on what happens to us in the criminal justice system started to kind of light my fire. And so I think deep down that's where my questioning mind started. Like that, I loved at uni, I loved the idea of critical thinking and I loved the idea of science and unpacking systems and stuff like that. So I think although we didn't break up because I directly rejected diet culture, the beginnings of of it were there for sure. But I spent, you know, a good 10 years completely, although like I said, I didn't have an eating disorder, I was completely wrapped up in body and worth and self-worth and being worried all the time about what people thought of my body and and even internalising thoughts about my own body. So it wasn't really until I started learning about non-diet approaches that this started to really come up and be obvious for me. Mm. And when did you start learning about those? So I did my psychology degree. I did my master's degree. And I think because I've I've wondered, like, why on earth am I so interested in the non-diet stuff? Because I'm not one of the practitioners who come into it with an eating disorder background. And I'm privileged and I'm white and, you know, I'm all these things. So what what is it about this that's that's so interesting? And I think it's the idea of social justice because that's what's always driven me as, as a human being. I've always been someone who's quite sensitive and been on the lookout for fairness and looking out for people. So in my study, it turned into, a, like I said, the double major in criminal justice. And I basically ended up being a psychologist in a jail system for quite a long time, for about six years. And I loved it, but it was so complicated <laughs> because uh, you are running into systems of oppression everywhere in jail. These people, if the revolving door was real and trying to help people live a life where their whole background, their whole culture, their whole identity is full of injustice and full of oppression and just full of uh, just incredible determinants that are beyond their control. And my job as a psychologist is to teach them to be good. It, <laughs> it's enormous. <laughs> yeah. And the the idea of the psychologist being the one to sort of help them be compliant, right, with the system. <laughs> Pretty revolting. Rather than process. I mean, I'm sure there was probably a lot of processing of trauma and stuff there too, because a lot of people in the criminal justice system have gone through unbelievable trauma. So, but it's sort of like weird to hold those two things together. Like, can I, you know, help this person recover from their trauma and also sort of toe the line and be a good prisoner? Yeah, be a model prisoner. Yeah, there's so many parallels to diet culture. It's hilarious, but yes. Exactly. So hard to help people learn how to be free when they're being kept in cages. I mean, the population that I ended up working with, interestingly, was sex offenders. So that's where, like, my feminism really started to come out again. Because being a young female white psychologist in a sex offender jail is, oh, God, 
there's just so many things that you run into about attitudes towards women, objectification of women, even attitudes towards treatment and whether or not people can be rehabilitated, sexism in the prison system from your bosses, like just... So I I started reading a lot more feminist stuff at that point and I think that's when I had to at some point leave jail. (laughs) I bet. Um, That sounds like it would be a traumatic experience for for you too, maybe at some level. You know what? It really was and no one talks about that. No one really talks about the impact of being around so many negative attitudes towards women and, and, you know, I, I got it every day. Like I got the responsibility put on me in a way that wasn't put on the male practitioners in the jail. I had to watch what I wear <laughs> in case I excited the prisoners. And you know what? A lot of the people there were offending against men and boys, but the men and, bo- you know, the men that I'm working with are not being told to take responsibility in case they excite the male offenders but it's just never questioned that the females really need to watch themselves and not wear too much makeup and not be too suggestive and all that kind of stuff. So, Wow. Yeah. Like I look back on it now and I think, wow, how how did I survive that? (laughs) Yeah, that sounds really oppressive and like just sort of making you, yeah, responsible for other people's actions in a way that that women are sort of implicitly told that we are all the time in society in various ways but it's like that was a very explicit way that you were hearing that no it's it's yeah absolutely being told with no uncertainty that this is my responsibility and I think that's what has started to unfold for me I think in in psychology in general we we try to approach problems problems in inverted commas with this idea that this is something that's located in the individual and we need to fix them. And the context is so ignored. And when I was spending all that time in jail, no one really looked at this broader context. I mean, it was talked about, but the broader context of inequality or the broader context of, you know, we have a massive problem with sexism in our culture and that might be something to do with why most sex offenders are male. These contextual questions are not asked enough or given enough airtime. And it's, you know, it's the same when it comes to the psychology of eating disorders or people struggling with eating and weight. It's located as an individual problem or this person has a problem with their body image. So let's fix them. Let's use this set of strategies and fix them. And how can we do that when we're ignoring the context? How do we fix people in a broken world? (laughs) And it's like that metaphor you're using about you know, how can we help people be free while they're still living in jail, right? Like, which I think is the the style of treatment in a lot of treatment centers, unfortunately. It's like, let's teach you how to be a good prisoner in this diet culture system. Let's teach you how to toe the line and not gain, quote, too much weight, you know, and manage your weight, but also not have an eating disorder, which is a really impossible line to walk, right? Well, that yeah, it's exactly it's saying you need to be a model prisoner. Like, recover from the eating disorder, but please don't get too fat. Let go of this over-evaluation of weight and shape, but don't be heavy. I mean, hello. <laughs> <laughs> like, not even, not even in jail are things that screwed up. <laughs> right. Yeah, the mixed messages are just mind-boggling. 
Yeah, yeah. And eating eating disorder treatment really needs to look at this because I, I fear it's getting worse. I fear this attitude of recovery from an eating disorder can mean weight loss is actually becoming louder. Yeah. I've noticed that too. There's some treatment centers that have opened up like weight management and obesity treatment wings or, you know, tracks. And it's like, and so now they're, you know, it's the anorexia and bulimia folks or the other specified feeding and eating disorder are going into like the eating disorder track. And then the people in larger bodies who have binge eating disorder are going into a separate track that is supposed to encourage weight loss. And it's like, there's such a problem with this picture. Yeah, we have here in Australia, we have literally obesity and eating disorder clinics opening up and they're, they're having research funding thrown at them and and conferences and presentations and it just makes me, I don't really know what it makes me want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't quite believe, like, it makes me angry. I can't believe that no one is seeing, like it feels like the emperor's new clothes, like nobody's seeing the big picture, no one's seeing what's actually being transmitted here. And it's like a myopic view. I can't, I can't get how people are not seeing the damage that can get done. It's like, did you see that research article that came out saying that it would be a great idea to learn from anorexics? Oh, yes. Unbelievable. Oh, God. I... <laughs> That there's there's something to be gleaned from anorexia for to use for weight loss, like anorexia in the treatment of obesity, quote unquote. Yeah, they were concluding that, that people from the Biggest Loser study, the the formerly the so called obese people, their brains were similar to that of an anorexic. So that's a good thing. <laughs> oh. and, and- Nowhere was it mentioned that maybe this is anorexia. Maybe that's not good. Yes. Yeah, the fact that anorexia can exist in a larger body is totally ignored. It's totally ignored, but it's actually couched like it's a good thing. Right, right. It's like praised. How on earth can we think that a mental illness that kills so many people and just causes so much suffering is something we can learn from? just makes me, ah, just... Almost wordless. <laughs> <laughs> Full of rage. Full of rage. We need to speak up. We need to get these big messages, these big contextual messages across. Like, come on, guys, what the hell are we doing? We can't expect recovery from eating disorders and to make everyone thin and think that's a good idea. Yeah, it's impossible. I mean, people's body sizes have always existed on a bell curve. There's variety of body sizes. The BMI chart was literally developed as just like a descriptive statistic originally saying like, here's what the distribution of body sizes looks like in this European population that I'm studying, which, you know, back in the 1800s or whatever. So it's like, how can we possibly think that now in somehow in this modern day and age that everybody should be at this one you know small section of the bell curve and that there's no room for the rest of it Mm. I think the bits that's really been forgotten in eating disorder treatment when it comes to this idea that we need to then make everyone smaller is that the essential like driving force with an eating disorder isn't to do with body weight. It's to do with the over-evaluation of body weight and shape as a marker of self-worth. And recovery is about loosening from that. Recovery isn't about chasing a body. It's actually about loosening from the idea that a body shape or size is representative of anything to do with that individual's worth. And that 
just seems to be t- just out of the conversation now. It doesn't even seem to be mentioned. Yeah, that is so disturbing. You're right, because it is overvaluation of weight and shape is literally what our society is doing when it says we have an obesity epidemic and we need to have people lose weight by any means necessary because otherwise their health, oh my God, their health is at risk, you know, which is just not, there's no evidence to support that actually. It's not a causal connection between body size and health risk, but that's what that's what people assume. And then it's like, that becomes the thing that everybody's chasing is like, how can we make larger body people smaller? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's why I'm so passionate. I think about the non-diet haze stuff is that it's like, I love science and I love critical thinking. And that's what drew me to non-diet stuff because it is critical thinking. It's critically unpacking this weight focused paradigm and finding like much less harmful ways of helping people. That's, that's what's so cool. And it just so much blends with the context of social justice, which is what it's all based on. But we really are living, like, it's seriously becoming the dark ages with critical thinking. And that's why I think the eating disorder community is is almost getting more rampant with the let's just chase weight loss with eating disorder recovery because critical thinking is not happening as much as it needs to be happening in, in a lot of arenas. But it's definitely coming into the, the weight science arena and eating disorder research arena that there's no critical thinking happening. And that's why, you know, what you're doing and just raising the voices of people saying, what the hell? We really need to think about what we're doing from that broader perspective. Yeah, no, I think that's that's why I do this podcast. It's so necessary to have a counterpoint and to spread this message of health at every size and non-diet approach and intuitive eating because there's so much out there to the contrary, all this noise and diet culture messaging, and it hasn't made us any healthier. The argument like, but health, you know, but people's health. It's like, no, we can see very clearly that people's health on a population level really suffers from this pursuit of weight loss and changing your body size and on an individual level too. Like probably most people listening wouldn't be here unless you had had some negative experience with diet culture, with pursuing weight loss or pursuing what is being sold now as health within diet culture and having that go terribly awry. Mm. It gets us all like I was saying to a client yesterday, it's almost a miracle if you make it to 30 in this culture and you don't have an eating disorder. I really don't know how any of us get through unscathed. <laughs> even even me, right? I have all this privilege. I had all this education. I was even feminist trained. I found myself going into private practice after when I was setting up and leaving jail and I was dieting. So somehow in my head, I thought, well, in order to set up my private practice, I probably need to lose some weight. (laughs) And the first time in my life, I went on a diet. But I remember opening the private practice and in my head, that was linked to the weight loss that I was aiming for. So somehow I had paired up career success with weight loss. And it saddens me to think that I'd equated them equally because opening your own business is a fairly huge achievement all by yourself. But like to pair it with weight loss, like that's important. I look back on that and I feel so sad for myself. You know what? It also was formative because, of course, I put the weight back on. And after those two 
major diets. That's what, and, and I started seeing people in the private practice and literally everybody I saw wanted to lose weight. So people had depression and I want to lose weight. I've got marriage problems and I want to lose weight. You know, I've got sexual dysfunction and I want to lose weight. And and I've just done this weird weight thing as well. And I, I'm as an evidence-based scientist, I was thinking, well, I can't, I can't recommend Jenny Craig. <laughs> <laughs> what, what can I, what can I do? Because you know, you get no training in a master's degree about how to help people with weight stuff. So I was, I literally, I searched around. I did like a complete nerd that I am. I, I did literature searches just to say, well, what's the efficacy? Like, what works? And, oh, my God, like, it's it literally nothing works. <laughs> nothing. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And you had another guest on your podcast who did the same thing, right? I can't remember who it was. Yeah, I think it might have been Regan Chastain. Yes, it was Regan. Yeah, I had a Regan. I did the Regan thing. I did. I read all this literature. I had stacks of papers and I couldn't believe what I'm reading. Like, surely it can't be true that everybody who goes on a weight loss diet regains the weight. But Yes, it is true. Actually, it is true. And then I'm reading all of the specific, well, because, you know, as a psychologist, I think, well, maybe if you add the psychological stuff in, right, the CBT, or if we add the mindfulness stuff, maybe that's the answer. But you know what? Those studies are exactly the same. And I I remember having a period, maybe a month or two, where I'm like, I don't even know what to say to clients who are worried about their weight, because like what I'm finding out is quite confronting that we're up against this biological storm that is going to respond to the deprivation that is dieting and it's not their fault. So that's luckily when I found Dr. Rick Korsman and his book, If Not Dieting Then What? And I remember like I literally read it in about half an hour and I was falling off the chair and I was like, this is it. This is exactly, oh, my God, I have to meet this man. (laughs) And he was doing training in Melbourne like really soon after I read the book and I lit, I just like jumped on a plane and did the training with him and that was life-changing. That three-day course he runs was amazing and I like I really felt like I found my people with first Dr. Rick and then all of the other people I've met since then. That's awesome. Oh, it was, it was so validating to hear another health professional say, yeah, nothing works. And we don't have to keep trying because that seemed to be the conclusion in the rest of the literature that I was reading, right? Nothing works, but we should keep trying. (laughs) Yes. It's mind boggling how this literature can present all this evidence that whatever diet or intervention they're testing doesn't work or that in like a meta-analysis that like 50 that they looked at don't work or whatever. But then the conclusion is like, but still keep trying because... That's that's the only way we know how. <laughs> what? That's insanity. That the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And yes, that is what weight focused science is recommending. And it was so refreshing to hear, like, well, first of all, Rick say, and then Linda Bacon in Health at Every Size, and all of these amazing practitioners. Actually, we can draw a different conclusion. And it's much less harmful and it's actually empowering. Whereas the other way, like you said, the only way through is to become that model prisoner. Mm-hmm. And that people can't really become the model prisoner except for a, an exclusive, you know, maybe 
three to five percent of people or something like that. Like nobody actually achieves that. Everyone else is just sort of periodically escaping and rampaging and getting sent back. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Nobody can sort of withstand the the prison for very long. But for me, that's the good news. For me, that's the hope because we're not meant to be in jail. We just need to knock the freaking walls down. <laughs> yes. And, oh. and knocking the walls down is there's no such thing as good food or bad food. There's no such thing as good bodies or bad bodies. There's no such thing as the right amount of exercise. Like, I'm just going to say, just fuck all of that. Yes. There is freedom and there is empowerment in coming into your own body and saying, oh, what's happening right here, right now? And what do I need? Totally. Yeah. Mindful eating, like tuning in to the body stuff. When I started doing that, it was it took me to a different level with food because like I, I had an affectionate relationship with food, but now I've kind of got a love affair happening with food. <laughs> Which took a while, it sounds like, because in your childhood, like that was not happening at all. Yeah, I think it would have, <laughs> mindful eating of stinky lettuce might not have helped. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God, yeah. Yeah, it has to be mindful eating of, of food that gives you pleasure, right? That, that has the capacity to give pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's about connection and, and sensory connection to the moment, which all of that joyful stuff is left completely out of diet prison and food jail because it doesn't matter how much you're enjoying or not enjoying something. It just matters what you're attempting to do with your body. So just the location of pleasure with this, I love that. And I love introducing clients to that. And that's just so cool when people come back and start raving about, you know, a croissant that they just had or something like that. I like helping and being a part of that process of finding the joy and the connection again. It's so nice. It's so much more rewarding than someone coming in and saying, oh, I've lost like whatever amount of weight. That's so boring. Yeah. So boring and so short-lived too. I mean, because as a dietitian, like I started out my career in that, you know, that's like what dietitians are trained in. There's very little diversion from that in any sort of mainstream dietetics education. And so going out into my internship and into the field and working my first jobs in nutrition, it was like, okay, you know, teach people about how they can control portion size so they can lose weight. Teach people about how many vegetables to put on the plate and how to limit their carbs and this and that, you know, and it was, it was just exactly towing the line, being a prison guard, being part of the problem, part of the machine. And I just remember the frustration of that. And hearing some of my supervisors talk about clients that I was taking on and be like, you know, this person's been with us for years and they've, here's what's happened with their weight in the past. Here's what they did that worked. And then they stopped being able to do that. You know, they stopped doing it. Like they had these life circumstances come up that made them stop doing the thing that was working. That's like how it was framed. And I just remember feeling like, well, everybody has life circumstances. Everybody's going to have things like that come up at various points throughout their lives. And what are we to do then? Like, what what does it take to be able to adhere to this diet when you also just had a baby or when you are working two jobs and trying to change careers or when whatever, just all the stuff that comes with being human? What does it take to be able to stick to a diet then? And that's what sort of led me down this path of thinking about 
psychology and people's relationships with food, as well as my own history of having an eating disorder as well, and sort of having my relationship with food be fraught, was like, just sort of clicked like, okay, there has to be some psychological element that is the missing piece. That was like the first hypothesis, which was very rooted in diet culture. And then I started to see, oh, but even that, like same as you, even that part doesn't show any efficacy. And a different approach that actually works better is to help people become more mindful and self-compassionate in their relationship with food. And that really resonated with what I was working on in therapy, just about my own life, my own relationship with myself and relationships with others. Like a lot of self-compassion and mindfulness work was already happening there. So then I was kind of like, oh, it's it's the same thing, but for food, you know, and it just really clicked. Yeah, because this is a relationship. This is a relationship. This is not a cookbook of strategies to be good forever. It ignores context. I saw a new client yesterday who came and she'd seen a CBT therapist for an eating disorder. She was binge eating sort of almost daily. And she said, you know, we we talked about urge surfing and we talked about all these great shiny, sparkly CBT strategies to not binge eat. And it's totally ignored that she really needed to binge eat sometimes. Like why? Do I need to eat like this? That that had been completely left out of the conversation. And as it turned out, this woman had such a history of trauma, so much trauma, and the only way of dealing with feelings was to soothe herself with food. And so we ended up having this fantastic conversation about, well, what happens like if someone's really in distress and you take away their security blanket, how do they go? Right. You can't just rip it away. That's the coping mechanism that has worked for this person. Yeah. And so she she went away from the session with full permission to binge. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And I think too, from like a physiological standpoint, sometimes this is not true for everybody, but I think some people within diet culture have this mindset that like, I'm supposed to not eat as much as I want to. I'm supposed to not need this amount of food that I'm hungry for. So I'm going to restrict myself and sort of limit to what seems like a socially appropriate amount. And then there's this physiological need there too, that also can contribute to like feeling anxious and depressed and out of control and like all of these things that feel like emotional reasons to eat, but then are also coming from a sense of restriction and deprivation. Yeah. Breaking through that deprivation thing is massive and necessary and that there's literally no way through breaking up with deprivation than to give yourself permission. I talk about, I've got a cow analogy. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're a cow. Imagine you're a cow and you're in a little tiny field and eating at the same old patches of grass every day, but all around you are these like amazing looking fields that you're not allowed in. And then one day the farmer opens the gate and you're allowed to go. And what is that cow going to do? That cow is going to go for it. Totally. Oh my God. I can't believe the gates are open that cow is not going to eat from hunger signals. She's going to eat from, I cannot believe I'm allowed to do this. She's going to eat from deprivation and I better get it in now and I can't believe how tasty it is. And she's going to just like graze in every single paddock because she really thinks that at some point she's going to get locked up again. But if you leave the gates open and day after day it's just there, then eventually she will settle. She will eventually start to feel like she can walk anywhere at any time 
And that's when she'll start using her hunger signals to eat. But there's no, like it cannot go from the cow locked in one little field to the gates being open and feeling relaxed. You, you can't just switch from one to the other. You, you need to go through this like process of unlearning deprivation thinking. And that's, that's with pure freedom. I love that. Yeah, the unconditional permission to eat has to be reinforced and felt, right? Exactly. It needs to be felt. And and that's like at a physiological level and at a psychological level, there's just a sense of safety that this is not going to get taken off me. Quite often, you know, people, especially if they're struggling with being at a higher body weight, they're like, I'm deprived. I'm eating all the time. (laughs) It can be hard to detect deprivation. But deprivation isn't about how much you're eating. Deprivation is about how locked up you feel and how frightened you feel of food and the ability to always eat it if you need to. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. It's I call it the hidden faces of the diet mentality. It's like people think they're not dieting. They think they're not restricting. And yeah, I've had the same experience of clients in larger bodies, especially will be like, look at me, I'm clearly eating enough. You know, that's the mindset. And in fact, they're not eating enough and they're, or they're not eating the foods that they really want. They're depriving themselves of enough food and variety and pleasure and satisfaction and sort of going for substitutes. And so then it's like the sort of feeling like, oh, I shouldn't be, why am I binging? Why am I, you know, when I get access to this thing that is really pleasurable, why am I so out of control? And then it's like, well, let's look at where else you have pleasure and satisfaction in your day and your life. Do you have other foods that bring you pleasure and satisfaction? Do you have other things in life that bring you pleasure and satisfaction? Or are you just like locating all of it in this sort of end of day binge on the thing that you thought was forbidden? Mm, mm, yeah there's so much that's the relationship too there's so much else to unpack like what else brings you pleasure and joy and is it all just food and and is it possible to give yourself pleasure and joy in any other way right now maybe it's not and it's not I guess it's just not approaching this whole thing with I'm doing something I don't like and I need to get rid of it straight away it's much more about I need to understand what's going on unpack it and sort of befriend myself and, and really find ways of looking after me that can add and enhance this process of self-care. So, because I would never say to someone, look, you can't do this anymore, or the aim is to stop this behaviour. The aim is to scaffold and to add and to add and to add so that you never feel like that's the only thing you can do, but it's always there if you need it. Mm, that's really beautiful. I love that approach. You're mentioning like kindness and sort of mindfulness. Like you talked in your book a bit about mindfulness and compassion as being sort of necessary starting points for any behavior change. So I'm curious how you came to that philosophy and how that you think functions with people's relationships with food. Yeah. Like I just, I mean, I'm a psychologist, so it's, we can't actually change stuff until we understand it. So another analogy, I'm good with those. (laughs) When people start therapy, they come in and so imagine you're in a town and you're driving and there's no street signs, there's no GPS, you're just kind of driving along, just following the streets where they're taking you. And that's kind of what it's like in our own thinking. So we think all the time and our thoughts are just occurring naturally and they're just taking us places and we're believing them. So 
that's where most people are. And so coming to therapy is imagining that you could kind of get in a helicopter and hover above and look down at the town. Because, you know, when you're in a plane or something and you're looking down, you can see in a town how everything's connected, where it's all located. So that, for me, is mindful awareness. It's, it's simply observing what's going on in your thinking right at that point. And it's looking at it from above as opposed to being in it and believing it. Because from that sort of slight detachment, you can get a choice. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not just sort of sucked along in the usual pattern of, of how things go. It's you're observing and, and seeing, oh, I could take this route over here or I could go this way. And like that would be a different outcome. And just having that kind of ability to choose. Yeah, yeah. And also to detach because so if you're looking at eating stuff, so you might look at, okay, there's my suburb of food prison. <laughs> like all the food rules are there. And there's that roundabout of self-judgment that's that's constantly on a loop. And and so just seeing it like that can make a difference because rather than saying, Oh God, I hate myself for what I did on the weekend, you can get in the helicopter and look down and say, Wow, I'm really judging myself. Like that stuff in my mind is really trying to get me for what I did. Yeah, observe the judgments, not criticize yourself for the judgments, but just notice what's going on. Notice what's going on non-judgmentally. And then the self-compassion angle. So mindful awareness is sort of simply trying to observe without judgment. And compassion brings a real element of warmth to that whole process. So because compassion is deep down just this desire for the well-being of yourself and for other people so sometimes if I'm getting a little bit descriptive I'll change it from a helicopter to being like the sun because the sun shines warmly on the town and kind of tries to look after the pain the difficulty the stuckness it's just it's a big source of warmth and kindness that just sees what's going on and and is open to everything that's going on with this desire to look after it. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I think sometimes we, I mean, a lot of us are raised in very critical families and our culture is so critical and like so many structures in society make us think we have to be disciplining ourselves and punishing ourselves if we do something wrong so that we'll stay in line and be able to do better. But actually discipline and self-punishment aren't effective motivators and don't really help people have intrinsic motivation and do better in the sense of like, if they've done something that they feel is out of line with their values, shifting course and bringing yourself back into line with your values. Like we don't actually need to punish ourselves in the way that we punish offenders in the criminal justice system, right? And take them out of society and punish and shame. Like that is not you can see that in the criminal justice system too. That's not an effective rehabilitation for people who've done something wrong. Yeah, yeah. Shame is not a good motivator in the long term. And, you know, compassion, sometimes people get worried about it because they're saying, well, that's sort of indulgence, right? It's saying there, there, everything's okay. <laughs> but it's not. Compassion is the desire for the well-being of people. And sometimes that can mean being a bit firm, you know. So I've got a nine-year-old girl and she never wants to go to bed (laughs) and because I'm compassionate because I love her I sent her the hell to bed 
And sometimes I'm quite strident about it. You're going to bed, Ruth, you know, because I care about you. It's not indulgent. I want the best for you, you know, and I, I want to encourage whatever I can to bring out the best in you. But I'm also going to understand that if you fail, if you screw up, if you are not doing what it is that you set out to do, I'm going to respond with warmth and kindness and understanding because I know what it's like to be human. Whereas judgment would say, well, you've done the wrong thing, you're a terrible person, fix it. And honestly, the the shift, when I started putting self-compassion training into my sessions with people, and to be honest, putting it into practice in my own life, this deepened everything to an extraordinary level. And that's why I wrote a book about it, because I couldn't quite believe how awesome it was <laughs> <laughs> and needed, needed to tell everyone. And I think a lot, it's not just the uh, society and the world, it's actually psychology as well that's quite judgy and prescriptive in, in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of the CBT books, a lot of the treatment manuals and things like that are judgy. Yeah, they kind of pathologize people for certain behaviors, certain conditions. Uh-huh. Yeah, like something's wrong with you and we're going to fix you. And so this lovely idea of self-compassion, which is, Nothing's particularly wrong with you. Everything's pretty much understandable and I'm just going to care for you as, as you recover or as you try and learn how to look after it and to respond to your suffering. That is just brings a huge sense of relief and takes away so much suffering. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's so much more, especially for recovery from diet culture, right? Because Diet culture is that punitive, disciplinarian sort of way of seeing the world. It's so much more effective to do something different when you're trying to recover from that than do more of the same. You can't like shame yourself into giving up disordered eating or... You can't hate into self-care. Right. In in my town analogy, so if we've got like the, the diet jail and we've got the prison guard of self-judgment, what we're trying to do is build up this suburb of compassion because everybody has a compassionate suburb. They just reserve it for other people. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're really nice to other people if they're having a difficult time or to our children if they're having a difficult time. But if we're having a difficult time, we use the judge. So it's just trying to shine more light on that bit that's already there, that's, that's kind, that's genuinely concerned and doesn't expect perfection all the time and turning it towards ourselves. Yeah, that's so important. I think the the idea of treating yourself like you would treat a friend or a loved one going through the same thing is so helpful. And that was that really clicked for me because I've always been someone who's really compassionate towards others, but like thought that I didn't deserve it and maybe wasn't even conscious of that belief, but just was driving myself to such a degree that I would never ask of anyone else. And so to recognize you're deserving of just as much compassion as you give to everyone else is a pretty profound realization. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And people don't like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, because totally. what's interesting is the judge itself is the barrier to developing self-compassion. Judgment does not want you to accept yourself. And, and that's when it becomes for me like a boxing ring, like a bit of a fight. <laughs> in one ring, we've got like the judge that really doesn't like you. And in the other, we need compassion, which is like, I think of compassion as quite fierce, like a bit of a warrior that just saying, you know, screw you. How dare you talk to her like that? I love that. And protecting 
yourself from the damage that's being done by this jail, this prison guard kind of stuff. So it's fierce. It's not all mushy and fluffy and, you know, there, there. There is an element to that. There is a real element of kindness and and comfort that you bring to yourself. But there's also this really fierce protection that this this is my best friend. How dare you talk to her like that? Yeah, that's so important to remember. And I think that's something that I've definitely been thinking about in my own life lately about setting boundaries and how to be firm and compassionate in in boundary setting. Like, you know, just as I would with other people, I need to also do unto myself as well. And, and you know, remember that boundaries are important and appropriate and it's not unkind or uncompassionate to set them. It's actually sometimes the kindest thing to do for someone else or for yourself is to say like, nope, this is how it's going to be. And this is what I think is really going to help the situation. Mm. And that's what's so awesome about self-compassion. It's a mega skill. It's a, it's a well, meta, mega. <laughs> <laughs> it's also mega. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> it's not just going to help you with your approach to becoming more intuitive with eating or with exercise or with helping you feel better about your body, but it's going to help you set boundaries and behave differently with people. And it's going to help you stand up to diet culture as well. Yeah. And it's going to help you resist and rebel against all the crap that we're fed all the time. So it's, it's just lovely how, how enormous it is and how much resilience it can build. And like your your metaphor of the sun really comes to mind too, because it's like the sun is like a fiery ball, you know, but it also, it radiates warmth and it's really nice and, and loving and warm, but it also, it's fiery. It will burn you if you get to, if you violate its boundaries, you know? So, I mean, I think that's, that's such a helpful thing to think about too, is that you can be, and you know, I've, I've certainly felt this for myself in becoming a vocal advocate for health at every size and speaking out against diet culture. Like there's a fire in me about that stuff that I didn't know I had that in my days of struggling with boundaries and of struggling with my relationship with food and relationships with other people and just all of it, you know, I didn't have that passion that I, that I have since found after recovery and sort of learning self-compassion and applying that to my relationship with food and everything else, self-compassion has been the foundation for an incredible amount of fire and passion. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And because it, it's true, I, I've had the same experience of like way back going, oh, you know, really? Does, does it not work? <laughs> Is it okay <laughs> to up against this? Like, oh, to like now, like it, it is, it's like a, fuck you to diet culture and I'm so angry and and the sun is massive right and and I've had that experience like during formal self-compassion meditations and stuff trying to do some of the ones that are more about filling myself up as a therapist really had this really weird felt sense of just the enormity of self-compassion and how massive it is and how much bigger it is than the judgment that that feels louder because it's so overlearned, but the, the self-compassion is just enormous and, and so deep and just, yeah, I think with self-compassion, you can do anything. You feel like you can do anything. You feel like you can withstand diet culture. Totally. That doesn't mean you don't have your days when you're just sort of <laughs> under doona and rocking and going, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Things can still feel really overwhelming, but but I think too with self-compassion, it's like 
I mean, to me, it, it sort of has been a groundwork for rejecting diet culture in a really firm way because I think once I was able to apply compassion toward myself and understand the common humanity, which is also a part of self-compassion practice, right? Like recognizing like nobody succeeds on diets. This experience that I'm having of struggling against my body and feeling like a failure is one that, you know, millions of people have had. And the diet industry is a $60 billion operation. Like how many Billions of people have funneled through it over time. I'm not alone. And I think that that understanding really sort of roots me in the sense that, yeah, diet culture doesn't have anything for me. Like, I'm not going to get sucked in by the next thing or get curious about this new diet and think that maybe that's the answer because I have this sort of sense of like our shared humanity and what I've gone through and what other people have gone through with diets and I'm just done with it. You know, it's just not for me anymore because I have too much self-compassion to put myself through that again. Yeah. Yeah. If there's a certainty that comes with that connection to common humanity that, and connecting both with the suffering of everybody else in diet culture. But I think also the common humanity part for me is the recognition of how huge this anti-dieting community is, not just with health professionals, but with, with people who are also rebelling and knocking down the prison walls of this crappy culture. And so that's the other part that really keeps me going is connection, feeling so, I feel so connected to the anti-dieting community, both here in Australia and, and even around the world. And that doesn't happen in <laughs> other kinds of places, I don't think. So because I think all of the, really the health at every size practitioners all have this sort of sense of, compassion and connection that is I think it's kind of growing the community exponentially if that makes sense I really love it I love that sense of knowing that I'm not alone that there's you know if I am having a hard day I can reach out to somebody in my non-diet network and and find understanding and find you know a bit of strength and and gather myself again and I think that is just so huge and I think that's what your podcast is doing it's offering that sense of community to so many people and it's so important that we keep building it and connecting to all kinds of different people from who are coming at it from different intersections as well like my intersection is very privileged but but I love how you're talking to people who who are not represented in, enough and and I love that that's happening as well. So it's just this idea of connection and community that's building. That's it's just um it we are we are going to topple diet culture. It's it's time is is up. It is time. I yeah, no, I feel that too. I feel like it's really coming. And that's that's part of what I think the podcast has like given me so much strength in that as well, because as I've seen the numbers grow and heard from listeners from around the world and like seeing people connect with each other in the Facebook group and all of this stuff. It's like this is a real community. And this is it's so amazing how people resonate with this information and these experiences that guests share on the podcast or I share on the podcast that like, you know, someone like half a world away could be hearing that and saying like, oh my God, me too, you know, and that, and it gives them hope and helps them maybe take a step out of diet culture and empowers them to, to think of another way. When I first started the podcast, I wasn't as 
I didn't understand all of this in the way that I do now. You know, I was I was just starting out as to, you know, think about treating eating disorders in my practice and and sort of dipping a toe into that world and I didn't really know much about health at every size or non-diet. I certainly wasn't firmly rooted in it like I am now. But like as the the feedback has come in from the podcast and I've talked to different people and sort of felt what really resonated for me. It was like this non-diet thing feels so much more resonant and so much more deeply true than any of the other stuff. You know, anything I learned in school or any of the approaches that I took through like other continuing education and stuff like that. Like it it just, I don't know, there really is something special about the non-diet community. And and that includes not just practitioners, but also people who are who are walking this journey themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It really is an awesome community, yeah. I and it, I'm, I feel really blessed to be able to work in it and to see people every day who are open to this kind of stuff. Like it, it just is really meaningful stuff. It's so much more meaningful than a narrow approach that just ignores context and just tries to treat symptoms. I know, and it's harder too. You know, I think that's it's like the sort of people's desire for quick results sometimes gets activated and and with this work and it's like oh no this is this is a much slower longer journey that we're on here of dismantling diet culture and trying to push back against this stuff in the world and then also within ourselves like that it takes a lot more than just the quick fix approach yeah it does but I think you know if and and sometimes I mean that happens with clients that I'm seeing that sometimes they kind of go back into trying a diet or, you know, doing doing something. And I understand that. I understand the pressure people are under, especially people who are in very large bodies who are literally can't get through a day without being told they need to do something right now or they're going to die. It's it's so difficult. So it's just it's just compassionate. It's just being compassionate to this is where you are. And coming to see me doesn't mean you must abandon everything to do with weight focus or diet culture. It's more, I'm going to hold you with a sense of compassion, but critical thinking and science and like helping you stay aware of what the impact of what you're choosing to do is having on you and letting you make that choice. So quite often when people do that, they'll, one of my clients just recently got put on Duramine (laughs) and, oh God, I got an email from her on the weekend saying, I'm off Duramine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. Yeah, I, I tried it and the same old stuff started happening and, you know, I, I guess I can't unsee that now. And that's something to keep in mind as well, that it can feel like a, a safety net to go back to diet culture. Keep your eyes open, you know, it's, it's a very... It's a safety net that kind of chokes you around your neck. <laughs> it becomes harder and harder to sustain. And sometimes I think there's like a, a sense in which like people's learning or sort of integration of the awareness about health at every size and diet culture and all that stuff kind of needs to be challenged. You know, some people like can't get it out of their head that they need to try this one last diet or whatever. And if they succumb and do try it, you know, they walk a few steps down that road. Oftentimes that's what what sort of confirms for them. Like, okay, yeah, I, I really can't unsee all this stuff that I know. And I'm now realizing that this is just the same old story, the same old yo-yo that 
I've been on a million times and that any diet would have produced. And like, wow, that you know, it's like waking up from a dream. It's like, what was I, what was I doing there? And then <laughs> having compassion with yourself for that and sort of realizing like maybe that was part of your process. Maybe that little foray into the back down that path that was so well worn was what you needed to be able to see, like, oh, you know what? I actually prefer this other path that I'm on now. Mm, that's exactly right. Everybody's process is going to be different and some people's path will look like that and that's fine. No one's doing anything wrong. It's just, it's all about learning and keeping your eyes open. Yeah. And and tuning into how you feel and how your own experience of of things too, which I think that's, that's what mindfulness and compassionate mindfulness really brings is like, if you sort of are mindfully aware of what's happening in your mind and your body, when you make that last little foray into diet culture. Like, how do you feel? How does that, how does it make you feel about yourself or about food or your body or whatever? It's often pretty obvious. Like, oh, I feel like shit. (laughs) I know. I know. know. And from that, from that helicopter perspective, it's like, oh yeah, I immediately want to eat the world. (laughs) Right. And that that's not a problem with you. Like that's a problem with the diet and diet culture. And, yeah. you know, you were doing just fine until you made that little little journey. And that's the shift. Like rather than locating the blame in ourselves, we locate the blame in the, in the diet. And then that's when the prison can get knocked down. And that's awesome when people do that. Yes. Yeah. Like anger towards where it should be located, towards diet culture and towards oppression is so much more empowering and important. It's like anger is often turned on. I mean, diet culture creates that, right? It creates a scenario in which we turn anger toward ourselves that should justifiably be actually towards the diet for not working. But we're all sold this idea that, oh, if the diet didn't work for you, then you're the failure. You're the problem. It's like, oh, you're having an experience. That must be your fault. No. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm acting like a pretty awesome human, actually. And right. <laughs> and I, I think I, I, it, there is an alternative. There is another way I can look at this. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's so important what you're doing and what all of us are doing in this world. And I'm just so happy that this exists, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't, it didn't exist when, it, not nearly to the extent that it does now, it didn't exist when I started doing this. So I'm just like excited every day because so much seems to be happening. It really does. Like, I think, you know, we were talking earlier about how, like, diet culture is making so many inroads into eating disorder treatment. But I think health at every size, too, is making inroads into eating disorder treatment and also mainstream conversations about health and food and bodies. Look, we are showing up. We are being squeaky wheels and annoying the hell out of a lot of people. And I love that that is happening. (laughs) Big time. Yes. I managed to get myself on... Australian breakfast radio on a really weight centric radio station where they actually sell man shakes, right? (gasps) Which I know (laughs) their question to me was like, what should we doing with men and weight management? And Oh my God, I have completely dismembered diet culture in in (laughs) my responses. Oh, that's amazing. And we're going to be hearing about it on breakfast radio on this pretty sexist station. So I'm <laughs> I'm really interested to hear the response. That's awesome. Yeah. That is so cool. I feel like, yeah, going into the belly of the beast like that is is 
part of what it's going to take. Yeah, I can't do that without my community. Like I can't like with all of the non-diet people that are here in Australia and around the world, I, I can't wade in without their help. And they're so awesome at helping me do that. And there's some people in Queensland who are going in. It's so it's so revolting, but they're, they're talking about how to tackle obesity in children. Oh. And oh, it's a think tank. So it's going to be approached by about 10 Hayes practitioners. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's awesome. With their submissions. So th- this is going to start happening on a bigger and bigger level because we're all getting connected and we're all getting louder and we're all getting more angry and it's really good. Yes, and we're getting organized and, you know, knowing what's happening and showing up together, which there is such strength in that. You know, I, I agree that I wouldn't be able to do the work I do without the support of all the fellow Health at Every Size, you know, professionals and just people who, who believe in this. You know, it's that's what allows me to keep going with it, too. I feel like I would be, you know, I would have shouted myself to to oblivion screaming into the wind if it weren't for the, the people there to like back me up. Yeah, we need groups of people around us doing all of this together. We're all, we're all doing it together. It's great. I know. Well, speaking of that, you're about to start a couple of amazing like a group and then also a podcast, which I'm so excited about. So tell us about both of those things and what the the sort of non-diet approach you're taking there is. Yeah, well, I'm calling it my third baby. It's an it's an online program. I already have an online program, which is non-diety, but I'm going to start a new one because I have gathered together 12 different anti-diet people, from mostly from Australia, but we also have Linda Bacon involved as well. And so it's all of us together taking people through how not to diet, anti-dieting, this whole kind of idea of rebellion and it's called untrapped so the the untrapped program is all about how to basically recognize the prison and get the hell out and knock it down once and for all and we're using so it's not just me it's all of my wonderful non-diet people from australia and linda as well so it's just so cool because i don't think there's a program that has as many like anti-diet people in it so i'm so excited about that that's so cool yeah and how long is the program and what what are some of the the details and the highlights so it's a three-month program and we have monthly live chats with me and there's just I mean there's so much in it it's enormous that's why I'm calling it a baby oh my god (laughs) but we have like video interviews and we have written stuff and we've got homework and we've got challenges and so it's pretty cool untrapped.com.au is the website detail so people can go and have a look at that if they like and the podcast (laughs) oh god like talk about going from oh maybe this is a thing to like the fiery sun like I'm just as you might have picked up I'm just a little bit pissed off with the whole kind of diet culture thing so I've decided to start a podcast and it's called all fired up and basically, I'm going to be chatting to people who are in the anti-dieting space who are pissed off about something <laughs> and want to come and rant about it. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Mild-mannered clinical psychologist to ranting <laughs> anti-diet activists. So this is, this is a really new thing for me, but I'm really excited because there's just, there, there really is so much to be annoyed about. And there's so much to be corrected with 
the shitty news items that come out or the articles that are coming out talking about things in a certain way or, you know, fitspo or so that's that's kind of the aim of All Fired Up. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's so cool. I'm really excited to hear it and hopefully be on it and get ranty with you another time. I know how fired up you get about all kinds of stuff. So, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Fiery sun, definitely. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. So where can people find that? Is it, is, I mean, when we run this, it's going to be launching in a few weeks. So yeah. yeah. So the whole thing is going to take off at the beginning of August. And if you go to untrapped.com.au, everything will be there, including the podcast. Amazing. Oh, I love it. I could talk to you forever. And this is so much fun. So I can't wait to rant again soon. Oh, definitely rant again soon. Take good care of yourself. You're doing an amazing job. I just love your podcast. It's so cool. Thank you so much. I love what you're doing too. So that's our show. Thanks so much to Louise Adams for being here. And thanks to you all for listening. If you want to get full show notes for this episode, including all of the resources we mentioned, you can go to christyharrison.com slash 114. That's for episode 114, christyharrison.com slash 114, and get all the details. If you like the podcast and you want to help us reach more people with this anti-diet message, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes and also subscribe and share via iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the podcast and helps bring us up higher in the rankings so that more people find us. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect?